0: All right. We are in the back in the book of Luke, so we're going to be in the book of Luke for a while, um, and uh, and so we are still making our way through this great gospel. Um, Luke chapter seventeen is where we are. Luke chapter seventeen. Looking at the first few verses in that chapter. If you want to know how difficult it is for a pastor who is preaching on Sunday morning, who is responsible for his three kids because his wife is away. That is me right now. Um, so I'm a little tired. Didn't get very much sleep last night. And uh, I had to get the kids here like at eight something. And I, I still beat Robert here though. So I just wanted, to get, I, I, I won that battle. Uh, so I, I won the day, I won the morning. I got uh, them here. I got them dressed. They Maggie's a little, didn't have brushed her hair. Lincoln's hair is a little crazy, but uh, we did get them here. Um, and uh, Lincoln's got, I mean, Teddy's got diapers. And so uh, I think that's a win for dad uh, on Sunday morning. Uh, and we'll see how the sermon goes um, and see if I succeed at that as well. Um, and uh, uh, it's been interesting being able to, this is like my first time parenting three kids by myself. Charity's going to laugh at me, because she does this often, for the whole weekend. And I, I, walked, I walked, my watch popped up, and it showed me how many steps I took yesterday, and I took a lot of steps yesterday. I don't think I sat down at all. Um, so I, I definitely have a better understanding of, of stay-at-home moms, and moms whose husbands are away for traveling, for, for jobs, and things like that. Uh, God bless you. Uh, I just want to say that. And, um, and uh, pray for our moms, Pray for those who are left behind, um, who are caring for kids um, and taking care of the kids as others are away working or for other reasons, um, because they definitely need God's provision and God's care and God's grace. We're in Luke chapter 17, and we're at 1 through 6, a small passage here. And he said to his disciples, temptations to sin are are sure to come but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than that he should cause one of the little ones to sin. Now pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if, the, if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. The apostle said to the Lord, Increase our faith. And the Lord said, "If you had faith like a grain of mustard seed, you would say to this mulberry tree, "Be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you." Let's pray. To Lord, we are so thankful again to be in your house, to open your word, uh, to come together as a church. I know that seems so formal with someone standing on a stage and people sitting in chairs looking up, but this is no different than what we see in Acts chapter two. When they were in a home, they were surrounded. Uh, they surrounded the apostles' teaching, and they were together. And they heard from you, and you encouraged them. And you are also going to encourage us this morning. I pray, Lord, that you would lead us to faithfulness in you. Lord, I pray, Lord, if any of us are are doubting you this morning or are lacking faith, like the apostles here, Lord, I pray that they would rely on you and trust you, and you will provide it, you will care for them, you will give them strength. And Lord, I pray for those in this room who maybe are new to Christianity, they're new to the Bible, and, and uh, they're just seeking, they're, they're interested, they're curious, Lord. Lord, I pray, Lord, that you would show yourself to them as well. Lord, I pray that you would encourage them, and pray, Lord, that you would uh, enlighten their hearts to your truth, and Lord, I, that you would draw them closer to yourself. We love you, Lord. We praise you. We pray for those who are not with us. Pray, Lord, that you would be with them and bring them back safely. We pray for those in the room who are going through uh, struggles, going through um, situations at work, going through situations in the home. Maybe they're they're sick uh, and not feeling well. Lord, I pray that you would encourage them as well this morning. Encourage them through your Word. Encourage them through the fellowship of believers. Lord, we pray for uh, just for our, our college students, Lord, who are. entering their last kind of phase here this semester, Lord. Some of them are graduating, Lord. Lord, I pray for those who are seeking jobs, that you would provide them. I pray for those who have now received jobs. Lord, thank you so much for your provision. I pray, Lord, that you would encourage them, but help them understand that whatever job you've been given, that you've given them, that it's for your glory and not their own. We love you, Lord, and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, the title of this uh, sermon is The Thing That Matters, The Thing That Matters, um, and I, was, I like to read, and I read the Wall Street Journal often, uh, sometimes I get behind, but I like to read the paper, and, and Friday they always have the, um, I think it's kind of silly, they have the mansion section of the paper, and you're like, what is that? Well, it's a bunch of houses that they're profiling that are like millions upon millions of dollars, Uh, I don't think any of us in this room are going to the Wall Street Journal's mansion section to look for a new house. But there are, I mean, there's a list of houses like in Beverly Hills and in Nashville, Franklin area, and other parts of the country that you can buy these multi-million dollar houses. And there was one that I thought was kind of funny recently. I was reading it, it, and the title of the article was A Natural Beverly Hills Mansion, a natural Beverly Hills mansion. And let me tell you, let me read some of the descriptions of this house. Now the house is $45 million. It's for sale. It's $45 million. And I'm going to tell you why it's $45 million. I think it's 18,000 square feet. Um, you start wondering how much bigger is that, is that house than my house or my apartment. It's quite big. And it has a 15-foot tall waterfall wall. That's right. The wall is a waterfall. Um, it, uh, it has a bridge entryway. So you people who love castles, this house has a moat. You walk across a bridge. It has a stream that literally goes under the house. Um, but this is the funniest part. You think that's kind of, okay, like why do you need a bridge into your house? Yeah, I agree. Why do you need a waterfall? This, I think, is the silliest part of this entire house. So they wanted it, to, again, natural. They wanted to have an organic, like a kind of a, a greenery type uh, focus to the house. So what they did was they, the builder or the uh, the or the kind of the, the architect of this house. They put in the courtyard. Yes, it has a courtyard. Um, it has a they, they they shipped over a tree from Tuscany in Italy. That's 150 years old. It's an olive tree. Okay, that's just ridiculously silly. Why would you ha- Why would you think? All right, I know what's missing in this 18,000 square foot house. It's a 150 year old olive tree from Tuscany that has to be placed in the courtyard, in the center of this courtyard. And it, it, when some people who read that go, oh my goodness, that's exactly what's missing from my house is a 150 year old t- tree from Tuscany. Uh, if only I had that tree, my house would be complete, it'd be perfect in every way. But you know, some people read that, and we may laugh at that and go, why would, why would anyone think to put that in a house? Why would anyone need a waterfall wall? Why would anyone need a bridge into their home? Some people think, wow, that is, I want that house. That, to, the, to them, that is a symbol of the American dream. That's the symbol of a successful life. Um, and if you don't know this from history, the reason why kings and queens and lords would buy, build castles is that castles were not comfortable to live in. Castles were all, basically, it was a a symbol of their wealth, a symbol of their power, a symbol of their royalty. And that's why they would build these castles. And so they they had dignitaries that would come across the sea or they would come from foreign land. They would take them to their favorite castle that they built to show them their their wonder and show them their their kind of power and, and wealth. And the question is, what is success and failure in life? What is success and failure in life? What is the goal of life? Is the goal of life to have an 18,000 square foot house? To some, that is the symbol of success. Is to have money and to have comfort? Some of you are like, well, I don't need an 18,000 square foot. I just need a 4,000 square foot house. Then I would be happy, right? Uh, all that I need is a a three-bedroom house and a garage. And there's a sense where if I had these things and I had this comfort, then I would say I'm successful. Maybe it's accomplishments and respect from others, right? Maybe it isn't the house. Maybe it's that you accomplished a lot. Maybe that you you, uh, were able to uh, accomplish a lot of things at work and you were given respect and you were given promotions and people thought well of you. Maybe that's the definition of success in life. Maybe for some of you it's just survival. Getting to the end of the week is success. When I was a, a runner in high school and you know we the, the 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 object of the race was to win the race, right? To beat everyone else in your race. For a race car driver it's to come across the checker flag before the other drivers. Maybe success in life is to have knowledge and wisdom. Maybe it's to have uh, degrees and to read many books and to be thought of as someone who is smart and knowledgeable. Maybe it's to have a beautiful family. There's a reason why people post a lot of pictures of their families on Facebook, right? Because that is the definition of success, right? Look at my family. Look at my children. Look at the, the life that we've made. Look at the vacations that we go on. Look at all the things that we have as a family. Obviously, this this seems a bit subjective, right? What is considered success by one may be considered not success by another. But what I'm asking, is there a definite goal in life? Is there an objective goal in life? Is there something definitive that we can say that is success and actually that is failure? Does the Bible give us a definition? Does the Bible give us an answer? What is a successful or a failed life? Could you own a mansion with a 150-year-old tree from Tuscany planted in your courtyard and actually fail in life? Could you have a beautiful family and yet fail at life? Could you be literally surviving by the skin of your teeth, but you're actually succeeding in life? Matthew 16, 26 said, For what will it profit a man if he gains a whole world and yet forfeits his soul?" What really matters in life? I was reading a book that said, what is failure is being successful at things that don't matter. Being successful at things that actually don't matter. So by that definition, owning an 18,000 square foot house with a bridge and a waterfall wall and a 150-year-old tree from Tuscany is actually succeeding at the wrong thing. Not money, not comfort, not knowledge, not a beautiful family, not accomplishment, not respect. That is not the definition of the successful life. You can have all those things and actually fail because you're succeeding at the wrong things. You're not succeeding at the right things. What is the right thing? Continual trust in Christ to the end. Trust in Christ, which leads to a life that reflects Christ because you have given yourself to him. Think of Paul. Let me give an example of Paul. We tend to think that Paul was some successful pastor or church planner, right? Realize what was the the what, is, what was the result of his ministry. Yeah, yeah, he he planted different churches. But what do we know about Paul? He was thrown into prison, he was facing execution, his churches were struggling. We think of the church in Corinth and think of other churches that were started by him, they were struggling. Uh, they were being persecuted, or actually, there was sin going on in the midst of the church. He was completely ignorant about what was to come. He had no idea that 200 years later, that the Roman Empire instead of killing Christians would actually adopt it as its official religion. He had no idea that was going to happen as he sits in a prison writing letters to his churches. No one attended his funeral. By any church growth metric, he was a failure. There's you cannot go and find Paul's grave. There's no tombstone identifying where Paul is buried. Right? He was he was killed. He was executed by the government and thrown in a hole. But what do we know about Paul? God approved him. God approved Paul, even though any type of worldly metrics would say that Paul was a failure. God approved him and declared him successful. Why? Because he he trusted in Christ to the end. What does Paul say to Timothy when he's in prison? 2 Timothy 2.15, Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved. One approved. So This is kind of the main idea. How do you present yourself to God as one approved? How do you present yourself to God as one approved? To be a good and faithful servant of God. How do you present yourself in this way? Well, I think Jesus kind of outlines different uh, examples or different ways by which you can be approved by God, to do your best to present yourself approved by God. The first one, he starts here in verse 1. He's teaching to his disciples, um, and he says, Temptations to sin are sure to come. So the first one is flee inevitable traps to sin. Flee inevitable traps to sin. Uh, Temptation is is a word that can mean stumbling blocks. It can mean a trap. It can mean a temptation. And Jesus is saying that these temptation, these traps, these stumbling blocks are inevitable. They are sure to come. You can't prevent them from coming. They're going to come. We try to think that we can almost shelter ourselves in our homes and, and the world won't invade us. But Jesus is saying it's inevitable. Temptations will come. They'll come on your computer. They'll come on your phone. They'll come and they will find you. You cannot avoid them. They're unavoidable. You ask, the question that I ask is why does God not then prevent them from coming? Why does God allow these traps to fall before us? You think about Joseph and Joseph when he's in Egypt and he's hanging out and working for Potiphar, right? He's done everything that he's been asked to do. He's been thrown into a hole by his brothers. He didn't ask to do that, nor did he deserve that. He's then sold into slavery. He's now in prison. I mean, he's sold into slavery, and he's basically a slave in Potiphar's, in Potiphar's house. Again, Joseph didn't deserve this, and yet here, here he is. He does everything well. He does everything he's asked to. Potiphar makes him the, the kind of the chief servant in his house, And what happens? A trap is laid for him, right? Potiphar's wife tries to sleep with Joseph, and Joseph, what he does? He flees it, and then is thrown back into prison. Why did God not prevent that from happening? Joseph didn't deserve that trap from being laid before him. Why does God allow these inevitable traps to happen, these inevitable stumbling blocks to occur? I think number one is that it's used as a testing of our trust in him, I mean, Joseph was faithful to God in that situation. He was approved by God because of his trust in God. An example of someone who failed this test was Achan in the story in Joshua. Right when they, um, they, 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 the Israelites, they, they conquered Jericho. The walls fell down. They were told not to take the the, the desirable things, the devoted things of of Jericho, the riches, and the plunder of Jericho. And what did he do? He goes in, he sees the jewels, he sees the silver, and the gold, and the robe. And what does he do? Even though he's told not to take it, he covets it. And the temptation is is very real to him, right? He's probably thinking, Achan's probably thinking, if I just take all this money, take all these resources, when we get to the promised land, man, I'm going to be a pretty wealthy guy, right? I'm going to have to step up everybody else, when we get into the promised land, my family is going to be well taken care of. The temptation to live well in the promised land. He's, he's vulnerable in this situation, and he does what? He takes it. He thinks about why, I, he, he almost feels like if I don't take this, I won't be able to be successful in the next step of my life. He tends to see this as the means of his financial security, and what does he do? He no longer trusts God. God told them not to take it, that God was going to provide for them, and Achan did not trust God. And so he fell in the trap. We're all, we're all put in the valley of decisions where we have to make a decision, when we're put in the situation where we are told, where basically we have the decision, where we, will you trust, will you choose to trust God, or will you fall into temptation? Will you trust in God's means, or will you trust in the world's means for your security and your joy? It's a belief that this means, this temptation, if I desire this thing, I desire. that's why it's called a trap, that's why it's called a stumbling block. I want this so badly, I I believe that this will provide something that God is unable or God is unwilling to provide for me, so I'll take it to secure my future to make me happy, to give me joy because I lack it. God is not providing it for me. You see how faith and trust in God is so significant in temptation. We fall into temptation. We fall into sin because we fail to trust God in those moments. The context of this passage is the false teachers that Jesus has been talking against and kind of identifying as a, as a, as a means of stumbling these, these false teachers, these Pharisees, they lay these traps, they lay, lay these stumbling blocks. They're like spiders that spin their webs to lure in the prey. And so what are we do, How How are we to fight these temptations? We have to trust the word of God. Second Timothy 2:15. Paul talking to Timothy, again he's in prison. This is kind of his farewell address, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. The word of God is our anchor to fight the traps of Satan where temptations ultimately lie. It's with Satan, the enemy, the accuser, we have to trust God's word is true and right. And for, for, many of us, for many of us men in this room, uh, we struggle with lust. It's not a, something that's new, right? It's something that's talked about in the church quite often. Falling into lust is also a, it's a temptation, it's a trap, it's a stumbling block put before us. And we have to ask ourselves, will this give us joy or do we trust God? And all we do, I mean, do we, do we trust God, but do we trust his word? What, is, what does God word, God's word say in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 about this? 6, 19 through 20. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, for whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were brought with a price, so glorify God in your body. So it, it comes down to do we believe that? Do we believe that is true? Do we believe that our bodies are a worship to God, that we should use them for worship of God? Or do we not believe that? See, it all comes down to do we trust God? Will he provide for us? Will he give us what we need? Or do we have to go outside God to find that? Or do we actually trust his word? Is his word actually true? Is his word actually good? Do we read that passage and go, that is true, that is good, and I will obey and I will follow. I am someone who struggles with resentment. I tends to compare myself to other people. And when other people are succeeding and where I am in failing, I tend to have resentment. Where I feel like I need to prove myself, there's a desire to succeed that is so strong that when others are succeeding far, uh, faster or better than me, there's a sense of resentment and anger. Even in that, I have to believe what? That I have everything that I need through Christ. That Jesus has given me his righteousness, and that in Christ I am righteous and good, and I do not have to prove myself to myself or to anyone else that I am secure in Christ. Do we actually believe that, or do we not? Trusting him and his word, we can free our sin. We're free from sin when it comes. The second point is lead others to godliness. Lead others to godliness. So so Jesus continues here. He says, woe. Jesus likes to use the word woe. Woe. But woe to the one through whom they come. What is he talking about? They is the temptations, the sin, the stumbling blocks, the traps. The ones whom it comes through. he's, um, he's, He's directly speaking about the false teachers, the Pharisees. These Pharisees were one that Jesus says, they actually are a stumbling block to faith in Christ. They lead people astray. They lead people away from God. He calls them people who are actually closing the kingdom of God because they are leading people away from God. They are a stumbling block to faith in God. And Jesus says, woe to them for they lay these traps. They're leading people away from Christ. They're telling people that he's Beelzebub, that he is the devil. They're, they're, they're saying that he is not the son of God, that he is not the son of David, that he should not be listened to. They are laying traps for people. They're leading people away from Christ. And how do we think about this? Well, we don't want to lead people away from Christ with our words and our actions. We don't want to give people false hope. Oh, you're a good person. You're good. You're fine. God bless you. You're good. You're good. You're fine. I don't need to share Jesus with you. You're a moral person. You don't annoy me. You're nice. That's actually creating a stumbling block. You're actually leading them away from Christ. We make them believe they don't need faith in Christ. We need to do is send an example for others to see. Uh, to see, uh, to follow Christ, and they need to see our godliness. We need to, uh, sh- we need to pursue truth in our lives so that others will identify and notice. I think where a lot of people fail, some people that fail in this is parents. Parents present stumbling blocks to their children by giving them false hope. Right? Oh, we took you to VBS when you were a kid. You're fine. Oh, we we took you to church. We taught you certain things. Right. You're good at sports and school. You have good behavior. You're good. You're fine. You don't need Jesus. We need to be models of godliness in our home. We need to teach them the truth of God's word. We need to lead them to Christ. We need to teach them godliness. Not to be good citizens. That is a byproduct, obviously, of faithfulness to God. We don't don't want superstar athletes in our homes. We don't necessarily want straight-A students. We want godly kids, don't we? We want kids that follow Jesus. If God uses them in the way that he chooses to be great at science or good at sports, well, God, praise the Lord. But that is not our focus. We're not trying to make superstars. We're trying to make children that follow Christ. And that's why he says here, little ones. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. Little ones, I don't think he's talking about children. I think he's talking about believers and young believers especially, those who are immature. This is a warning to teachers and leaders in the church. Leading fellow believers to sin, you, should, you, should, you, you are warned in this passage. We should model what it means to trust in God and His Word. We should correctly handle the truth, as Paul says to Timothy. And, Timi- and Actually, Paul, it's interesting, Paul says this in 2 Timothy 2.15, and then he gives examples of two people who have fallen. They are teachers in the church, and they have fallen. They have actually created a stumbling block to the truth. Philetus and Hymenius are two in- individuals that are teaching false doctrine in the church. They're f- they're, they, are, they are creating a stumbling block to godliness. So this is a a clear warning to teachers of the word for for church leaders that you have been given a responsibility to teach the word of God, to shepherd the the young believers, the little ones. And if you teach them whatever comes to your mind or what you think they need to hear, what they need to hear is the God's word and be taught God's word. There's There's something I read recently that said that in Pakistan, um, Muslims will refuse the uh, ability of church planning. And you would say, oh, it's because they are against Jesus. Well, actually, that's not it. You know why they won't allow churches to be started in Pakistan? It's because they read in the newspaper that in the UK, that the churches stand for homosexuality, that uh, they, say they stand for moral, immoral living. And they go, well, if that's Christianity, we don't want that in our, in our country. You see where false teaching actually creates stumbling blocks from people hearing the gospel? because of false teaching, false doctrine, not teaching the word of God. Jesus wants our faithfulness. He wants our obedience. He does not want us to be cool. He doesn't want us to be respected by the world. Too often we think like the world and speak like the world because we think that that's what God needs us to do. What we need to do is be faithful and be obedient to his word, to teach it. And That was one of the reasons why these two men and Second Timothy were failing, as they were speaking like the world and saying things that they, that people wanted to hear, and by that they were upsetting the faith of some. We have to get the word right. We have to live according to it, and we have to set a model for godliness. Jesus says, "Watch yourself. Don't be fooled into sin, and don't follow their example. Instead, speak the truth in love." This is uh, point number three: speak the truth in love to others. So Jesus is telling his disciples, be prepared to fight sin in your own life, but also be prepared to speak the truth to a brother or sister when they fall into a trap. And so he kind of uses this little like phrase here in the, uh, the end, beginning of, of verse 3, pay attention to yourself, pay attention to the traps, pay attention to the, the temptations. Don't lead people away from me, lead people to me, lead people to godliness, lead people to faith. But also... Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. Be prepared to speak the truth to a brother or sister when they fall into the trap. If they fall into the stumbling block, be prepared to speak the truth and love to them. Again, Jesus has already told them, temptation is inevitable. It will come. It's not only going to come in your life, it's going to come into every Christian's life. As David failed, others will most definitely fail. G- D- King David, who, who sought after the Lord, who, who literally wrote some of the most beautiful passages in Scripture, failed. Right? He fell into the trap. So if King David's going to fail, it's inevitable that many of us will fail. We'll fall into these traps. As brothers and sisters in Christ, we have to speak the truth and love to them. What will we do about it when people fall into trap isn't it no, no big deal? Who cares, right? It's not my problem. I didn't fall into the sin, right? It wasn't me. I didn't do anything wrong. I wasn't the one that looked at pornography, so why do I care what they do, right? Jesus, Jesus rebukes that. He says, no, 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 you need to rebuke them. No, This isn't some kind of like self-righteous uh, soapbox where you're just standing on a, on a box just telling people how bad they are and how great you are. No, 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 no. What does Jesus say in Matthew 18, 15 when he talks about similar things? He says, When your brother sins against you, bring it up to him and do what? And you may gain a brother. Gain a brother. It's not about self righteousness, it's about reconciliation. It's important to have a church culture of character where we want people to be holy, right? God calls us to be holy because he is holy. That's what God's word says. So when you have a culture in your church that is wanting to pursue character and pursue holiness, that's very, very good. But you have to, if you're going to do that, if you're going to have a culture of that, which I think is good, you have to have a culture also that speaks the truth in love. There's a, uh, and I think before I say that, I think there's a, a struggle in the church, especially amongst us as, as, as kind of a, as maybe uh, who are millennials uh, especially that we uh, want to be liked. And the sin of being liked. We care too much what others think, so we're afraid to offend. Right? So we don't want to bring up people's sin because we're afraid to offend. Right? We don't want to offend anyone. But you, here's the problem. You don't care about them. You care about yourself. And when you care about yourself, you don't actually love them. So don't fall into the trap thinking you love them by not bringing up things to them. You are actually loving yourself and not loving them. And we want to gain a brother. We want to gain a sister. We don't want to lose our brother. We don't want to lose a sister into the trap of sin. We want to then forgive them and gain a brother. And So Jesus then transitions here and says, if they repent, forgive them. Point number four is raise, the, raise up those who fall. Raise up those who fall. He says, even if they sin seven times a day, Our desire should be reconciliation because God's attitude towards us. What was God's attitude towards us? He is willing to forgive us. If we do what? If we recognize our sin. Uh, I want to say this because I think it's just ridiculous. So uh, my, my my kids go to a daycare. Um, uh, Lincoln and Teddy go to this daycare that's connected to Deaconess Hospital. And uh, Lincoln's got this new teacher, and he's kind of brought some kind of uh, verbiage back home that just kind of struck me. But uh, when, when Maggie and Lincoln ha- have some dispute, and Maggie says, I'm sorry, Lincoln will go, well, sorry doesn't matter. Because his teacher taught him that. Oh, well, sorry doesn't matter. Sorry does matter. Like I tell, I'm telling Lincoln, like don't listen to your teacher. Sorry does matter. When we think about repentance and when we've done something wrong, we have to start with I'm sorry. Recognize that we've done something wrong. That we have has we've had a moral failure. We have sinned. We have to recognize it before we can turn away from it and repent. First John one eight through nine says, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us of all unrighteousness righteousness. We have to trust in God's forgiveness and realize that when people turn away from their sins and we forgive them, that God also forgives them. And that's why we should forgive them, because God forgives them. Why should we hold that sin above them if God of the universe, who they ultimately have sinned against, has forgiven them so we also should forgive others. If, especially if when they're, repent, they're repentant, right? They've turned away. Even if they've done the same sin seven times, you're like, well, there's no way they could have repented. They've done it again. But if they acknowledge it and they repent, we should forgive them. And we should have it a willingness and a desire to forgive and to restore people, to restore them. Um, if they've sinned against us, uh, we need to encourage them and, and speak the truth to them. They need to acknowledge their sin, turn away from it, and then restore the relationship. We need to reject anger and revenge. We can't have an unforgiving heart. An unforgiving heart is full of anger and bitterness. We have to throw these things off, be free from anger and bitterness by trusting in Christ. If we have an unforgiving heart, if we have anger or bitterness towards another brother or sister who sinned against us, we're actually unfit to worship, Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5. We're harboring sin in our own heart. We can't take the Lord's Supper if we're angry or bitter towards someone else. We have to pursue them, speak the truth to them, and reconcile, and then be restored for worship. I love that line. I you know the other reason why we should... Uh, I love that line that it talks about, Our weary load is borne by Him look to the cross. You know, we think about the reason why we should forgive others is because God has forgiven our debt, right? Since God has forgiven our debt, we should forgive others' debt towards us. When I love Pilgrim's Progress, I'm not sure if you've read it, but you need to read it, and I try to read it every year, and then we have an illustrated version that I read to our kids, and we started reading it again, and our our kids are noticing, why is Christian always carrying that big load on his back? As he journeys to the celestial city, as he journeys to the wicked gate, he's carrying this massive load. What is that? Is it a rock? Is that a a bag? And it's this burden that Christian has carried, and he doesn't know how to get it off his back. And in the middle of the story, he sees the cross, and the bag falls off. The debt falls off. And what's so interesting about uh, uh, John Bunyan's illustration is that it rolls into the grave. It goes into the tomb, and it disappears, Christian says. He doesn't know where it went. It disappears. God's forgiveness of our debt should give us a heart to forgive others. That's probably the best reason why we should forgive. The last point is this. Who is is adequate for these things? Who is adequate for? For these things. He, he ends here and says that the apostles hear all this, or the disciples hear all Jesus. He tells them they need to forgive people, uh, they need to rebuke uh, and, and speak the truth in love, pursue their, those who have fallen into sin, to, 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 to recognize that temptation is going to come and to flee it. And, and their response to the, all these things is increase our faith. Increase our faith. We are inadequate to be able to do what you commanded us to do. We are inadequate to do and follow what you have told us to do. they, They asked Jesus to grow their faith. Jesus has set this impossible standard. You're saying, forgive people seven times a day? How could I possibly do that? Even the law doesn't call me to do that. Even the religious leaders don't even call me to do that. The Pharisees don't call me to do that. You're telling us we have to do that? It's an impossibility. It's an impossible standard. We're inadequate to follow. And Jesus says, he doesn't say, all right, here's more faith. What does he say? He says, if your faith is like a mustard seed, the smallest seed, you will be able to say to the mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. Uh, the mulberry my, tree, my father-in-law is a tree farmer. So anytime I get to a passage that has a tree, I always text him and ask him about certain trees to see if I, he'll provide a little more resource than most commentaries. And, he, and, and, and the, the, the Greek word is actually sycamore. So I don't know if a mulberry tree and a sycamore tree are very similar. Uh, but I was asking him about the sycamore tree, and he said, Oh, yeah, sycamore trees can become 100 feet tall. And I said, How difficult is it to uproot a sycamore tree? And he says, Well, maybe a young one, but you couldn't uproot an experienced, mature sycamore tree. Their, their roots are too strong. So, what Jesus is saying is, is that if you trust in me, if you trust in God, you will be able to uproot. A, an, unrootable, uprootable, unrootable, uh, an unrootable tree and plant it in the sea, he says. And how is that? What, what, is, what is it about what Jesus is saying? He says you only need a little bit of it. It's not the faith that matters. It's who the faith is in that matters. It's the object of the faith that Jesus is saying. If you trust in Christ and trust in his character that he is good, that he, you know that he loves you, you trust his word to be true, that it is good and it is right, It has authority over you, and you believe what it says because it is good for you, you do what? You give yourself to it. You abandon yourself. You hide yourself in Christ. You follow after him. It affects your life. By our trust in Christ, you live a life that reflects him. You are able to forgive. You are able to speak the truth in love. You're able to flee temptations and traps because you trust in Christ. You trust in his word. You've given yourself over to him. You are inadequate to do this without faith. That is the most important thing in life. That's the only thing that matters in life is, do you trust in Christ or not? The one who trusts in Christ has a successful life, and those who do not are failures. Why? Because success in the wrong things is not success. But success in the right thing, the only thing, is the definition of success. And that is trust in Christ. That's why he says, even if you have the faith of a mustard seed, you can do impossible things. And by that, when we trust in Christ, we actually reflect him. That's when Paul says in 2 Timothy 2.15, Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved. The world doesn't care if you trust in Christ. doesn't care. It doesn't care if you reflect Christ. It could care less. The world cares about money. It cares about comfort. It cares about respect. It cares about accomplishment. It cares about what's on your CV and on your resume. It could care less if you're reflecting Christ. It could care less. The world doesn't care. They won't take notice. They won't applaud you, and you will not get any thanks for it whatsoever. Your parents may not even care about it your brother or sister may not care. Your boss probably doesn't care. You know, you know the people who get, uh, Matt Chandler said this once at a conference, he said, no one would invite me to this conference if my church wasn't so big big and successful. No conference is going to invite a pastor who's faithful to God and faithful to his teachings, but there are very few people going to his church. The world, even the Christian world doesn't care. It doesn't even take notice. So it's hard sometimes to think, why should I pursue this if the world doesn't care, if it doesn't take note, if it doesn't applaud, if it doesn't thank you for it? Because trusting in Christ, trusting in him, trusting in his word, even when the world won't take notice, even if the world doesn't care, God cares and he approves you. He doesn't approve you of the other things. He does he doesn't care if you get invited to the gather for the gospel and speech and preach at that particular conference. That does not bring him glory and praise. Obedience and faithfulness to him and trust in him to the end. Reflecting Christ when nobody will notice and no one will thank you, but you know God approves it. That's what matters. Tim Chellis talks about the highest privilege and the greatest honor is not preaching great sermons, but to caring for those in the hospital. Things that nobody will notice, no one will, will Uh, thank him for or no one will give him an award for no one will invite him to a conference because he cared for people in their homes or cared for them in the hospital the things that matter the things that god approves we have to do our best is to fight sin lead people to godliness speak truth and love to your brothers and sisters raise up those who fall and do these things that matter through trust in christ the failure to do these things is a failure in faith. We don't believe in Christ. We don't trust in Christ. The reason why you continue to fall into sin is because you don't trust Christ. And it's not because you need more of it. You need to ask, Lord, in these situations, will I trust you? In these situations, will I trust your word? And in these situations, would I give myself over to you and follow you? We have to ask him for continued faith, to seek to reflect Christ in your life, to care about the things that truly matter, and to live a life of success by trusting in Christ. It starts with asking. I always like to say this. There's certain things that you can pray to God, and he will always say yes. This is one of them. If you ask God, Lord, will you, that I would continually be faithful to you, that I would continually trust in you and trust in your word, that I would continue to follow you, In the midst of temptation, Lord, in the the midst of traps that are inevitable in this world, Lord, may I trust you and trust your word and follow you. I'm going to just tell you, God will say yes to that. He will say yes to that. So stop not asking. Start asking. You don't receive because you don't ask. We don't ask enough. We don't ask for faith. We don't ask for trust. And so we keep on falling into sin. We keep on doing things that do not reflect Christ because we don't ask for faith in Him. And that's the thing that matters the most. It is the thing that matters in life. The definition of success and failure rests on this, trust in Christ. And if you're not asking for it, then you don't care to succeed in life. Trust in Him. Trust in His Word. Seek to reflect Him care about the things that truly matter, and live a life of success by trusting in Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for its challenge, Lord, to trust you and to be faithful to you. Lord, we, even in our own little lives, Lord, sometimes we feel like we can't uproot anything. We have, um, it's impossible for us to plan anything. And you're telling us that we can uproot a mulberry tree and drop it in the sea. And all that, all that is required of us is the faith of a mustard seed. And Lord, the reason why we lack faith is because we don't ask for it. And the reason why we, can't, we keep on falling into sin is because we don't ask for faith. The reason why we, don't, we can't forgive our brothers and sisters is because we don't ask for faith. We don't ask for trust in you. Lord, I pray, Lord, for, for those who are brothers and sisters in this room that you would give them in those moments, that they would trust in you. They won't fall into sin. They will love their brothers and sisters. They will forgive them. They will not be bitter. They will not be angry. That they would pursue a forgiving heart. And for those in the room who are not believers, I I just want to apologize for anyone that has led you astray. I want to apologize for anyone who who has directed you away from Christ by their actions, and by their words. And I want to encourage you to look to Christ, to look to the cross, and have your burdens taken away, that your debt is taken away, that you are forgiven by the blood of Christ, that by His righteous life, you are free and you are forgiven and your heart is transformed by Christ. You're given hope in this world and your definition of success and failure is completely redefined for you You don't have to appease your parents. You don't have to be the most successful business person in your office. All you have to do is trust Christ. And that's all that matters.